0: Good afternoon to all of you. It's good to see you here with us today, and i um, thankful that slowly but surely the Lord is bringing healing and bringing you back among us. Um, some of us somehow were spared and didn't catch anything, but maybe it's coming, but the Lord is sovereign. We know that. Uh, we do return to our exposition in the book of Hebrews. We come to a really awesome passage today. We're going to see two mountains contrasted, we're going to see Mount Sinai contrasted with Mount Zion. And as we go through the text, I think you're going to realize that, that, that most of these things that are mentioned in our text today are things that have already been touched on previously in the book of Hebrews. We know that when we got to chapter 12 and verse 1, um, he laid out this, this idea that the Christian life is like running a race or a marathon, right? And let us run with endurance the race set before us. How fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're to consider him an all that complicated mathematical um, uh, problem uh, to consider all the facets of Christ, and then uh, likewise that discipline section, uh, verses five to eleven, and then uh, what we saw last week, and so this 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 theme of a lifelong spiritual marathon is something that, that, that is true of our lives. Marathon runners have to prepare mentally, right? They prepare physically as well, but mentally for what lies ahead. And think of a marathon, you know, You've got, you're going to end up with blisters, right? Running 26 miles. Um, you're going to end up hitting a wall at various times to where you need to keep pressing on. And that's the imagery uh, that's, that's here. And for these first century um, Christians who come to Christ, they've left Judaism, there was a temptation to go back. There was the, the, the former synagogue leaders and the uh, friends and relatives that had not converted to Christ were saying things like, you're headed the wrong way. You're, 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 you're running away from uh, Sinai and Jerusalem. Come back. You've left, you've left the mediator Moses for someone else. And we think of all the dangers of falling away, even in the first century context, of not wanting to go back to the synagogue, forsaking Christ, going back to Judaism. How much more in the 21st century are these things seeking to pull us and rip us away? The rationales and reasons are multiplied so much in our day. So in our text, the author is contrasting where his people have come from and where they are, are, are indeed going. And it's a contrast really between the Old and the New Covenant. So let's read our text. I'm going to pick it up at verse 15. It's been a few weeks just to um, sort of connect the passages. Our text is 18-24. to 24. But beginning in verse 15, Hebrews 12, if you follow along. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads and myriads of angels, and to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask for your help even now, that we would have understanding and insight into this text, that we would examine ourselves even as we we see the terror of Sinai, which is a reflection of your perfect and unmitigated holiness. And Lord, that, that each one of us will stand before you, that we would take stock but then also to realize the glories of Zion, of which we've just read. Send your spirit, O God. Help each one here to remove distractions, that we would come, as it were, to learn from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those previous three verses are very important. That C to it, if you remember my outline, was watch out, watch out, watch out. There was three Watch outs, and and the first is watch out that no one comes short to the grace of God, and that's the idea of the, the Christian life. We're not running to to win a prize, you know, ahead of the brethren, but we're running together. And so, when someone falls, is falling behind, if someone's backsliding, we go after them. We want to watch out that no one comes short of the grace of God, and then that no root of bitterness springs up, and then this whole idea. Of of uh, Esau, um, and what a sad picture that was. And he goes on to say that no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. You see, his estimation of the blessing of God and being the firstborn, he 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 looked at it so like as something little that could be just traded for a bowl of stew, probably lentil stew. And then it says that he sought repentance. He found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And we looked at the Old Testament context of that uh, with the giving of the blessings. But his tears were worldly sorrow, right? It's, It's, see, sorry that he lost something, but he's not sorry because he dishonored God and counted the blessing as a small thing. So as we move to our text today, really two long sentences in the Greek, um, uh, set side by side with contrast. It, it's beautifully constructed. Constructed. Some think that this is connected to those previous verses. Okay? Others, and I lean towards the idea that that this is an exposition that summarizes the main themes that we've already seen in the book, key phrases such as heaven, angels, firstborn, perfection, the new covenant, sprinkled with blood, have all occurred already. And so it's almost as though he wants to sort of summarize and shape up and, and set this before us before what we'll see next time, that strong warning section beginning in verse 25. So he's summarizing things. He, he, wants, to, he wants to paint a picture. He, he's contrasting the earthly to the heavenly. He's contrasting the visible to the invisible. The imperfect to the perfect. The temporary and changeable to the final and permanent. And so he paints this beautiful picture. The writer's point is that if you're in Christ, you have not come to Mount Sinai, a place filled with fear, but you've come to this heavenly dwelling place where God dwells. Now, in each of these, if you were to break it down, there's seven descriptive terms of Sinai, and there's also seven descriptive terms of Zion. And, you know, so again, the contrast, the the way the writer has written, um, one long sentence describing Sinai, one long sentence describing Zion. For our purposes, we're going to have two simple points. The Dreadful Mount Sinai and then the glorious Mount Zion, and then I've got three subpoints under each one, not seven, because I categorize them in a way that should make sense as we go through. So buckle your seatbelts let's go. First of all, dreadful the dreadful mountain of Sinai Now. If you look at the text carefully, Sinai is not even in the text. How do we know this is Sinai? Well, we know because of what we've read, the descriptive terms that are given. It is definitely talking about Mount Sinai. And the first thing we want to notice is its intimidating holiness. These verses summarize uh, with the nation of Israel that they were gathered and confronted with that awesome theophany. A theophany through physical elements, basically. And the holiness of God is on display. Back there and earlier in Exodus 19, in verse 8, I can just read it. Um, He's setting forth the covenant, the laws about to be given. This is prefatory before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And notice all the people answered together all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, rah-rah, rah, right? And and Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. But it's not long before their attitude changes. You see, the people might have been thinking, hey, I've seen the Red Sea divided. I, I, I've seen all these miracles. Wouldn't it be cool to meet with God and see what new miracle He could impress us with? You know, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be fun? You know? They've seen the Passover. They've seen the Red Sea parted. But they had no idea of the terror and the fear that would come upon them as they came face to face with the holiness of God. And may I just say a word? Those of you who are living just kind of going by the seat of your pants with no desire to honor God and thinking it's all going to be good in the end because, I mean, isn't he just a friendly old grandpa anyway? Well, you know I've loved you. I've kind of had some lift service, but even though you're not really living for him. There's going to come a rude awakening in that day when you are confronted with the holiness of God, and you stand before him. You will be naked. You will be undone. Everything you have done will be before your eyes, and you will be shaking in terror, just as the children of Israel were. Picture this mountain. You know, it's like a pyrotechnic show, right? I love fireworks, and I love pyro shows, and A Trans-Siberian Orchestra is a band that if you've ever seen them live, it's a fascinating performance. They do mostly Christian music. The last time I saw them, the pyro was so intense going 150 feet across the stage because there was about 30 performers, you could feel the heat on your face. And I'm not talking right on the front row. We were back a little ways. We were close to the front, but that's what this mountain was like. But look at the text. Look! Look at the text. For you have not come. He's talking to this first-century church. This word "come." If you look at verse twenty-two, but you have come to Mount Zion. It's the same word. It's in the same tense, and it's communicating what, what is the, the perfect tense communicates—the idea of its permanence, right? So you have not come. It's a word that's a word that, 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 that is um, used of the priest going to God to worship. It's the word that the writers already used a few times, and we've seen it mostly with draw near. It's the same word. For example, in 4.16, let us draw near with confidence. Let us come with confidence to the throne of grace. 7.25, He's able to save forever those who draw near to Him. Those who come to Him. And the last time we saw it was just back in 10.22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance. So, you have not drawn near to this mountain, Christian, but you have drawn near to Mount Zion. Now, our brother read from Exodus, but just to reread, I'm going to re- reread certain parts. Also, Deuteronomy 4 and 5 are parallel also to this that um, you can read later. I should have put that in the email. But verse 12, You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. No hand shall touch Him and he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man. Even if a beast got near there, he was to be stoned or shot through with an arrow. So picture the scene, kids. Kids, we're going to go meet God. And we're coming up to a mountain. But suddenly we see caution tape. We see signs. Danger. Do not touch. Do not enter. That's the scene. It all pointed to God's incredible holiness And by implication, reminded the people of how full of sin they were. And then notice in the text here, uh, (laughs) these string of words, uh, and to darkness well, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a whirlwind. Isn't that an irony that there's darkness if there's all the fire? Fire usually gives light, but there's darkness, right? This gloom, that's language that we see In the Deuteronomy account of this, and the whirlwind, these words emphasize the storm, the judgment of God against man for his sin. In Deuteronomy 4.11, You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness and cloud and thick gloom. These three terms of darkness and gloom and storm. It's a theophany. God is revealing himself through physical elements of nature. God's perfect law should strike terror into the sinner. John Blanchard, who's gone on to be with the Lord, um, wonderful author, says, Not only does God's law open my eyes to my guilt, but it shuts my mouth that I try, when I try to excuse myself. So it opens my eyes to my guilt, but it also reminds me: don't make excuses for my sin. So, our second subpoint: the terrifying, audible sounds—the things that you hear. So, first of all, they come to the mountain. There's this border. Uh, they're, they're there for three days. On, on, the, on the third day, this thick cloud comes over the mountain. Sinai is illuminated with flashing lightning and thunder as it were, plus the deafening trumpet blast in Exodus 19.16. So it came on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Picture this. Moses is rallying the twelve tribes. Get out of your tent! Come on, it's time to go! Get out of your tent! We're going to meet God. What an incredible sight. And then in Exodus 19.18, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it with fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Now it's not as though God saw the people trembling and decided to to play some soothing jazz so that they would calm down. That's not what this is. Imagine the scene it, it, it's it's a loud tr- loud trumpet sounds that continued to get louder and louder, to where little Johnny and the kids that would be nearby would be holding their hands over the ears saying, it hurts, Mom, make it stop. It just increasingly got louder and louder and louder. About 12 years ago, we were vacationing at Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and um, we were in the fifth floor of a condo, and we were there for a week, and um, no, I think it was five days, but um, The fire alarm system was not working well, and there were several false alarms, and some of them were in the middle of the night. But what what happens is, it goes off, and it's ear-piercing right off the bat, but then it gets louder and louder. In other words, it's like, don't don't think this is a false alarm. You better get up and move, or you're not going to be able to handle it anymore. And there were several, there was about three or four at least false alarms that we had, some in the middle of the night. But that's the idea. It just kept getting louder and louder, and you want it to stop. We had an earthquake last Wednesday. I don't know if anybody felt it in the evening time. Very quick, short one. But just imagine being present at this scene with the children of Israel. The ground is shaking all around you and it won't stop. I mean, I'll just say I felt like the, the first little tremor and then the second one. And I was up in my office with library books all around me that could have collapsed on me and if, if, if it you know it turned out to be a big one. But you know, I didn't I didn't take it very seriously maybe because that's, I've been through so many. But consider if it just kept going and going and going and going you're going to say oh, I got to get out of here. I got to it's time to go. But the scene here is intense. At the foot of the mountain as the mountain burned with fire. The people were visibly and physically impacted with the holiness and the majesty of Almighty God. This divine display on Sinai could never be forgotten. In fact, we're going to see next time at the end, just look at the last verse of chapter 12. For our God is a what? Consuming fire. The effect of these physical signs was to display in no uncertain terms the absolute unapproachableness to God. Even if an innocent animal was to wander in, it had to be stoned. This surely instilled, instilled a proper fear of God in the people, right? The old saying, to run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. I think that's Bunyan, I'll come back to that. But understand, the, writer, the, the, the writer's explanation that they have come to a better mountain is to bolster their faith. What he's doing is he's painting a picture that you've left Sinai. Don't go back to that synagogue. It's like going back to Sinai. It's foolishness. Don't do it. We're in the new covenant. Christ has come. He's our Savior. And then notice the text here. Remember, this is all the sounds. We've got the blast of the trumpet, the sound of words. The sound of words were so great. Deuteronomy 4.12 Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire and you heard the sound of words but you saw no form, only a voice. This is a loud sound and loud sounds that can be very unnerving. Sin makes us uncomfortable before God. The law certainly does not give man peace and comfort with God apart from Christ. And the people even cried a response at Exodus 20:19 and they said to Moses, "You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die." That's the terror that they had. Uh, "You speak, you go to him, we can't bear it to hear the sound." of words, and all of that visible display. Well, we've seen the intimidating holiness, the the audible sounds of Sinai, and then uh, notice with me, verse 21, what we see here is Moses is an insufficient mediator. Right? Look at what it says. It's so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. He's weak. He's scared. One of the commentators, Guthrie, said, This was a response to the intensity of God's red-hot wrath in the face of the the people's sin. Hebrews has been painting a picture for us in the New Covenant that we have a better hope, that we have a better covenant, that we have better promises, and also that we have a better mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it. It says it right in verse 24. And Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. When it says here in the text, I'm full of fear and trembling. It's, it, it, it's, it's the idea that, that it's, it's terrifying. It's the same word that occurred in 10, he used it two other times in the letter. 1027. Um, if we go on sinning willfully, there no longer, and after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation. This is not um, the, the typical word for fear or anything like that. It's highly intensified, a terrifying expectation of judgment. And then in verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, that's what's said of Moses here. He's terrified. He's petrified. And so he's an insufficient mediator. We know what Romans 3 says, because of the works of the law, shall no flesh be justified in his sight. But through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. Now, I mean, reading this description here, it would be easy for us to conclude the Old Covenant had no grace at all. Did the Old Covenant have grace? It did have grace. I mean, look at King David, look at, look at those, and from Hebrews 11, certainly grace was present, but what had happened is by the first century, as we've come down through the centuries, by the time this first century synagogue religion had become so legalistic, remember the Pharisees came up with 613, or however many it is, extra laws besides the Ten Commandments. It was a legalistic, ritualistic thing. There was, it was largely dependent on self-righteousness. Why do we see Jesus in the Gospels condemning the Pharisees? Woe to you! It became a self-righteous type of 1st century synagogue religion. So the writer is warning them, you don't want the law without Christ. You don't want the laws without the lamb. John Bunyan's wonderful work, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, please read it. It's worth reading um, many, many times. It's a picture of a pilgrim, a man lost in the city of destruction. He has a book in his hand. his book tells him judgment's coming. starts trembling. He leaves to set out on pilgrimage. He meets evangelists. An evangelist says, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And as he's counseling him, he says, you see that wicked gate? Head that way. Head that way towards the celestial city. He goes through the slew of despond, um, despairing even there. He finally gets back on his way, and lo and behold, who does he meet but Mr. Worldly Wise Man? How'd you like to dialogue with him? Well, Pilgrim did for quite a while here, and um, Mr. Wiseman, he begins to complain about the burden on his back. Remember, the burden represents the guilt of sin. He's not yet been converted. And, and he's complaining about, I'm on this way, but this, the weight of this burden is so heavy, and Mr. Worldly Wiseman said, well, how did you come with the burden, come to have this burden? Well, it's this book, and, and a man came to me and, and told me to go this way. And he goes, ah, so many weak men have been disturbed like that. Let me counsel you. And what does he say? He, he tells him to go to yonder village, to the village of morality. There dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality. He's a very judicious man, and a man with a very good name, if I say, that has the skill to help men off with such burdens as thine is from your shoulders. So Christian, look at his... So he, he listens to the advice. He goes out of the way. He's heading towards uh, um, the village of civility uh, or village of morality. And so this is the account. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he was got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high. And also that the side of it uh, the side of it that was next to the wayside did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture any further, lest the hill should fall on him. So, again, it's a picture of Mount Sinai. He's going along the side of Mount Sinai. And if you've seen the graphic drawings, you know, that are all artist renditions, this mountain is just overreaching him. And here he is trying to go. Wherefore, there he stood still, and he wotted, What should I do? And also, his burden seemed heavier to him. Then while he was on the way, there came flashes of fire out of that hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burnt. Here, therefore, he sweat and he did quake with fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wise Man counsel. And with that, he saw Evangelist coming to meet him at the sight of whom he began to blush for shame." I wish I could read the rest to you. Um, I didn't put it in my notes, but of course, uh, Evangelist says, "What are you doing? Well, how is it that so quickly you've 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 got you've you've, been, you've turned out of the way?" Paul to the Galatians, "Who has bewitched you, right?" And so he sets him back on course. He actually gives an exposition of the emptiness of worldly counsel like this. So, a Mount Sinai picture. Well, what a scene! of horror and terror, reflecting God's holiness. But now let's look at our second main point, glorious Mount Zion. Such a sharp contrast to what we have seen. First of all, this has a city with solid foundations. That's our 1st subpoint. That communicates something to the fact that it's permanent, that it's not temporary. And again, like I said, it says, but you have come not simply past tense he could have used the aorist tense but he uses the perfect tense which communicates and emphasizes a permanent continuing state in other words it's not just past tense you've come to zion now you can leave zion you've come to zion and that's a perfect abiding thing you'll never leave again this The the Greek is fascinating, and some of the tenses that he uses, I'll mention one other thing coming up here, it just emphasizes our security, our safety, that we are secure in Christ. Mount Zion was the location of that Jebusite stronghold that David had captured. He made it a religious center uh, for the kingdom by bringing the golden ark there. And later the the tabernacle, the temple would be built, And then um, uh, the ark would be moved there. All of this was a sign of this is God's presence at Mount Zion. But in Christ, we have a spiritual Jerusalem from above. And now, let me ask you this. Is he talking about something that's future? Are we in Zion? Are we not in Zion? Are we headed to Zion? What's going on here? Well, I think this is a prime example of that eschatological truth, the already and the not yet. You say, okay, he's talking out of the side of his cheek now. No, this is something that's very, very true, and we see it in the Word of God several places. Turn over to 1314. Just one page over. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. In a sense, it's yet future, it's to come. We're seeking that city. But in another sense, we're already citizens, Right? Philippians three twenty, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait a savior. But then Paul tells the Ephesians that that in Ephesians two six that we've already been raised up and already seated with Christ in heavenly places. The already and the not yet. In other words, it's it's sure it's it's going to, it's going to happen in. in the fullness of it, but in a sense we are already there, and we'll see that. Well, even in that hymn, encapsulates uh, that. And then he says, "The city of the living God." This is the city that the patriarchs were longing for. We saw it in Hebrews 11; they were looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's eleven ten and eleven sixteen of Hebrews, but. As it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Several of the Psalms uh, allude to this as well, as they do Zion, our brother brought out, Psalm 48, 1, Great is the Lord greatly to be praised in the city of our God on his holy mountain. What a contrast this is. That where Sinai was earthly and temporal, Zion is eternal and heavenly. It's like the contrast between the earthly and the heavenly tabernacle. Remember how the writers built that up in chapter 8 and 9? And back in 9-11, "...for when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. It's not a place on earth that we can touch. You see, under the new covenant, we no longer travel to a certain city. We no longer travel for these various feasts. We no longer have to go to a certain place to worship. Remember Jesus' encounter at the woman at the well. He says, I tell you that neither on this mountain nor any mountain, but those that worship me will worship in spirit and truth. That's a paraphrase of that, obviously. Now, the only other place in the New Testament that mentions something of these two mountains is Paul in Galatians 4, as he's talking about the slavery and pictured with Haggard. You can read that on your own later. Secondly, what are, who are the holy inhabitants of Zion? you, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, who are the inhabitants? And to myriads of angels. Myriads of angels. The church of Christ is met with myriads of angels. Kenneth West says uh, the angels are introduced here because they are the usual accompaniment of God's glory and the ministers of His will. Now, this is many places in Scripture that we see the myriads and myriads, right? The thousands and thousands of angels in Daniel chapter seven and Psalm sixty-eight seventeen. Psalm sixty-eight seventeen. The chariots of God are myriads and thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Or we could go to Revelation four and five and see that that heavenly scene in five eleven. Then I looked and I heard a voice, and many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands are told in chapter one of this book that that angels are um, ministering spirits sent to render service to the elect. So sometimes angels protect us, Right? Uh, This, what is it, Psalm 91 that says he will not allow you to to stub your toe or something along those lines. Um, But sometimes angels are present at significant events, like even martyrdoms, as in a certain account that I'm going to share with you. Just back on January 8th was the anniversary of when Jim Elliott and his friends were killed in Ecuador, martyred for their faith. Those Uca Indians that were heathens that they sought to minister to would become converted. And there is churches that abide today. Well, two young Uca Indians, Dawa and Kema, heard singing after witnessing the martyrdom of the five missionaries in the jungles of Ecuador. This is a quote from Untold Destinies, a book. As they looked up over the tops of the trees, they saw a large group of people, and they were all singing. And it looked as if there were a hundred flashlights. That's the that's the account that these heathens, they saw it when they were a heathen, but later when they would become converted, and they were interviewed and, and talked to. So, angels, what an amazing thing. Now, <clears throat> if you look at uh, And the NAS, it has, um, and to the General Assembly, um, I'm not sure why um, the NAS uh, did not translate that right. The ESV certainly gets it right. It's a festive gathering. The myriads of angels are there with festivity and celebration. That's the idea. And then the firstborn, notice that and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Firstborn is not necessarily the first one born, but it's a position of prominence. Jesus is the firstborn, right, of us, but by implication, Christians that are united to Christ and therefore are also the firstborn because we are co-heirs with Christ. And then, so this church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven is the totality of the community, of the saints this the verb that's used for enrolled in heaven is a perfect passive which communicates that God is the one who has enrolled them and it cannot be undone so it's a beautiful comfort that we have if you're a christian your name is enrolled and that's great news it can't be removed isn't that good news this is the catalog of the church militant that remains on church, uh, on earth but the church triumphant that now rests in heaven. It's a catalog of the totality of the people of God. It's both Jew and Gentile. The first century synagogue officials and family members that were calling these first century Christians back, were calling them back to only a Jewish audience, calling them back to Moses and Sinai. But no, this is a beautiful mix of Jew and Gentile, one family, one strong family, a beautiful family that God has put together, a family of God that can never be broken. We sang from this wonderful hymn, Fading is the world's best pleasure, all its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. And then he goes on to say, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is probably a reference to believers who are already in heaven, right? We've got the church on earth, the church up there, but the, this is, these are those that are already in heaven, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. You see a picture of that in Revelation 14 and verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled by women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So we've seen that this city has solid foundation. It's permanent. We've seen the inhabitants of Mount Zion. And now, lastly, we just want to consider the marvelous mediator that we have. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the only mediator for us in the new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. And as great as he was, he trembled fearfully in Sinai, right? He's an inadequate mediator, as we said. Those in the synagogue that are wanting to cling to Moses as their mediator since they had denied Christ. This idea of sprinkled blood. In what sense does Abel's blood speak? Well, who killed Abel? Cain, right? And it was a murder, right? (laughs) And Abel was offering a good offering, right, that God was pleased with. And Cain, out of jealousy, rose up and slew his brother. Abel's blood cries from the ground, just like the blood of any other innocent that are slain around abortion mills and all of that, and cries out for judgment to God. Because He is the one that will correct all things. But Christ's blood is better than the blood of all the other Old Testament sacrifices and all of that. Jesus' blood pleads what? Mercy and forgiveness for those who he shed his blood for. So it pleads to the Father, mercy and forgiveness for this child, this child, this child that I died for, I shed my blood for. It can cleanse us from all sin. First John one seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sins. Well, a couple of points of application. first so as we run this marathon of the christian race remember we're in it as a family we're in it together right we we want to see to it that no one right how does he put it see to it that no one comes short of the grace of god we're in it as a family to encourage one another on as fellow pilgrims on earth and we must keep before our mind's eye that jesus kept the law perfectly and therefore there's no need to go back to Sinai. Secondly, these two mountains illustrate two ways in which people seek to approach God. Many people think they have to approach God through God's law. They, they think it's, 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 it's law-keeping and that kind of thing. And if you ask people, you know, um, if they're going to heaven, say, well, I think I'm trying to be a good person and Isn't that true? Like, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell? Like, that's about the depth of the understanding. None of us are able to approach God through our own good works. Our good works are as filthy rags, Isaiah says in chapter 64. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You cannot keep the Ten Commandments We're reciting our Baptist catechism slowly, just one question at a time. And we have broken, we're in the Ten Commandments section right now, we've broken God's law. If you've broken it in one area, you're guilty of all, James says. So don't don't fall into that thing of, I've been so good, I've only broke two of the Ten Commandments, that'll get me in. Isn't it on a sliding scale? No. You need a mediator. The law tells you it'll awaken you. It'll condemn you, but it cannot save you. And what does Paul say? The law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The law shows us that we can't please God in our own efforts, but Christ is set before us. We we can't trust the terrified Moses to intercede on our behalf. We must look to Jesus, whose blood was shed to satisfy all the demands of the law. So we look to him. Now, does this mean that if if you're in Christ and you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, that that you can just sit back and not care about sin? Of course not. It doesn't mean that at all. It means we, we should continually strive for holiness and the sanctification back, verse 14, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So we know we're perfected in Christ, but we don't want to trample underfoot the blood of Christ, so we long for holiness. Samuel Bolton, great Puritan work on the law, says this, the law sends us the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us back to the law as a frame of our way of life, of what God expects of us. Christ has freed us from the manner of our obedience, but not from the matter of our obedience. Thirdly, and more gloriously, between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, there's another mountain. It's Mount Calvary. It's where Jesus was crucified. Our Savior completely fulfilled all of the demands of the law so that now we can approach Mount Zion. He perfectly kept Sinai's law. He perfectly kept those Ten Commandments in the 33 years of his life. That's his active obedience before God. But then he also, on the cross, passively took the wrath of God in our place. His passive obedience. Our mediator approached Mount Calvary. He knew it would be one of judgment. He was trembling himself in Gethsemane as he prays and tells his friends, can you pray with me? He's grieved, he's distressed. He sweat, as it were, drops of blood, Luke's account tells us. But he endured all the terrors of the law because of his great love for us. Because of his work, we now have priestly access to God that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that's what christ has accomplished for us what a glorious thing it is to be enrolled in heaven and mount zion let's pray oh father how we thank you for your word thank you that it does not return void and lord today we pray that we would not be quick forgetting things but Lord, that we would be those that would consider these truths, and especially for any who are outside of Christ, that they would see the terrors of your law and want to get right with you. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.